the Buddha's last words before he died were, strive on untiringly, work out your deliverance with diligence. So pointing out how important effort is on the path. Milarepa, a very famous, wonderful Tibetan yogi, wrote something after having practiced for 11 months. This is what he said. In one place, doing a retreat, I meditated strenuously for 11 months, never allowing my cushion to lose its warmth. So, once again, pointing out how essential, how important effort is on the path. Perhaps he went a little bit overboard, but still is making an important point. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is the art of effort. As many of you know, there are many lists in the Buddhist teaching. And there are the two kinds of effort. There are the three kinds of effort. There are the four kinds of effort. You can find effort as part of the seven factors of enlightenment. You can find effort as one of the five powers of mind. You can find effort as one of the ten virtues or paramis. But I think tonight what I'd like to talk about are just the two kinds of effort. Meditative effort and wise effort and effort that is unwise, effort that does not serve. Meditative effort is not the effort to try and change any of our experience at all. Effort, meditative effort, is not the attempt to try and become somebody. It's not the attempt to try and become somebody else, someone other than ourselves, the person sitting next to us, or ideas we may have about who it might be better to be. This is not meditative effort. It's not the effort to attain any particular state of mind at all. It's not trying to attain peace or joy or anything at all. It's not the attempt to maintain any particular state of mind. This is not at all meditative effort. It is not the attempt to see anything in particular, to try and see something in particular, or to attain or to achieve something special, whatever that might be according to our imagination. Meditative effort is not the attempt to change the contents of the mind. It's not the attempt to control the contents of the mind. Meditative effort is not the attempt to push anything away. It's not the attempt to get rid of anything. It's also not the attempt to hold on to anything at all, to cling to anything at all. In the realm of meditation, what we know about effort because of our conditioning and how we were brought up is very different. It's very, very different. In a way, the same word can't be used. Because in terms of the effort that we've been brought up with, there is the effort to try and become someone. There is the effort to try and change ourselves, to improve ourselves, to need what is being offered in the culture. And so it really requires a whole shift 
and a real openness, stripping away in innocence to begin to work with effort in a fundamentally different way. In meditative practice, right and wrong don't apply at all. Success and failure don't apply. Suffering, lack of suffering, end of suffering, this applies very much. But to move out of the realm of success and failure, right and wrong, this is true effort. This is an effort that we do wish to make. What meditative effort is, is relating skillfully to the contents of the mind. Not so much focused on what it is that is occurring, instead focused very much on how it is being related to. How am I relating to whatever it is that is arising, whatever it is that is happening? It's the effort to be present. It's the effort to be here and now in this moment. It's the effort to understand. It's the effort to observe without attempting to change anything. It's the effort to be aware and to be awake. This is what meditative effort is. It's also the effort to acknowledge states of mind that obscure peace. And so we notice when there are states of mind that are wanting, when there's a wanting quality in the mind, the mind wants something, needs something, has to have something or another. We can notice this, we can acknowledge that wanting is occurring. We can acknowledge it in the moment that it's occurring. Not so much focused on what it is that we're wanting, whether it's an object or a relationship or a person, or whether it's a state of mind, a rumor of something that is supposed to come out of practice. It's still wanting. And so we want to just notice this particular state of mind when it's occurring. And this is good effort, this is meditative effort. Not to try and push it away, not to try and cling on to it, but simply to be open and aware and noticing, desire, wanting. We would like to notice and acknowledge aversion, pushing away when aversion is occurring, when there's any kind of critical coloration of the mind when we don't like whatever it is that's happening and there is a striking out against it, a pushing away. Meditative effort is simply acknowledging, noticing, being open to aversion when aversion is occurring. We want to acknowledge and notice restlessness or agitation to be aware, to be innocent, to be open, to be soft with restlessness and agitation. Noticing if there is aversion to the restlessness, if we're pushing it away, if we're judging, and then noticing this as aversion. We want to acknowledge and notice any degree of sleepiness or dullness or inertia in the mind. And again, simply to notice, not to take these states of mind personally, but simply to recognize. This is the wonder of meditation, is the recognition of whatever state of mind is occurring. So noticing when dullness or sleepiness is occurring. Aware and open to doubt when doubt arises. Aware that doubt is arising, that it's obscuring peace of mind, that it's availing over the true nature of the mind. 
and that we can acknowledge it without judgment, without harshness. We can simply see and notice it as doubt. Doubt is arising. Doubt is disappearing. Aversion is arising. Aversion is disappearing. Wanting is here. And then where is it? It's gone. Restlessness may seem to go on forever. And it ends at some point. And so noticing these particular states of mind when they arise. Being aware of our reaction to these particular states of mind, as most of you know, they're called the five hindrances. There may be a reaction of it shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening to me. This shouldn't be happening right now. There may be reactions of blame or of guilt. And this we also want to acknowledge and notice. Again, not the attempt to do anything, not the attempt to push it away. The attempt to see, the attempt to notice, the attempt to observe in a non-judgmental way. Because it really doesn't matter whether we want any particular state of mind to be happening or not. It really doesn't matter whether we want any particular thought or emotion to be happening or not, simply because it is. And we want to be very aware, very clear, that it's not just happening because here we are in retreat. At some point in our lives, we need to come to terms with all states of mind. And so here we are right now, coming to terms with wanting, aversion, restlessness, need, longing, boredom, indifference, inertia, doubt. This is our chance right here and now to come to terms with these various energies that perhaps have pushed us around for an awfully long time. A retreat is a way to not put off coming to terms with all states of mind. in order to understand ourselves, in order to understand whatever state of mind arises, these particular hindrances, for instance, we have to be able to get close. We have to be able to become intimate with these states of mind. And this is where the breath comes in. Because in our practice right now, our attempt is to very much be with the breathing time after time again to really nourish our attention to the breath. And as we become more and more intimate with the breathing, it allows us to become more and more intimate with whatever it is that arises without getting knocked off balance, without getting quite as overwhelmed without identifying quite as much with whatever it is. Being with the breathing and the way that we are gives the mind an enormous strength, an enormous power, gives the mind quite naturally an enormous pool of serenity, of stillness. And then we can take this same serenity, same stillness, same pool, enormous resource, and apply it to whatever arises in the mind with much more satisfaction about it than when these states of mind arise and just kind of knock us around. It seems like they play with us to some extent. And so being with the breath in the way that we are, the way that we have been in the way that we are, is a way to learn how to be more intimate with our lives, with whatever it is that is arising. One thing we're learning through being with the breath in this way is sustaining the attention 
sustaining the attention on an entire in-breath or an entire out-breath or even an entire in-breath and out-breath at one time. But we're learning how to sustain the attention. And this is so important because whenever any state of mind arises, perhaps our inclination, our tendency, our instinct is to veer away from it, is to move away from it, is to be fearful to some extent. And as we learn more and more how to sustain the energy, how to be with the breathing in the way that we are, we also learn how to sustain the attention on whatever it is that arises without exception, including whatever it is that is happening in our lives. Also, something quite natural happens when we're with the breathing in the way that we are. The way that we are with the breathing is allowing for a certain level of absorption to occur. Concentration is a fine word, and often we can get confused by it, because sometimes it can seem like we're trying to accumulate breaths. Absorption is being in this moment with this breath. It's being in this moment with this in-breath, with this out-breath. As we become more and more absorbed into the breathing, quite naturally, the hindrances begin to change. They begin to... The mind, actually, or the heart, begins to be secluded from the hindrances. And they may very well still arise, and it's an entirely different experience. They're not harmful. They're not hurtful. Restlessness is there, and it's not a problem. Aversion is there, and it's not a problem. Wanting is happening, and it's not a problem. And at times, there are no hindrances at all. And we can get a glimpse of this through being with the breathing in the way that we are. A few hints about effort. One of these hints is that we don't have to feel like practicing in order to practice. We can feel quite enslaved by our feelings. I feel like walking right now. I feel like sitting right now. I don't feel like going to yet another sit. I don't feel like going to yet another walk. And I think it's quite important in practice to recognize that feelings are just feelings, and we can still practice even if we don't feel like it. We can be free from our feelings. Some years ago, I think it was in 1984, I sat a three-month course with a teacher that kind of cracked the whip a lot of the time. And I knew what I was getting into which was a schedule of many hours of sitting, many hours of walking, and four hours of sleep. And I realized before I came that it was going to be four hours of sleep. That was the part I was focused on. And I knew that there was no one to blame. I was choosing to do this retreat myself, knowing full well what it entailed. But in the beginning, and for many mornings after the beginning, I would wake up really tired, And I would think, do I feel like getting up? And I would lie around for a couple of minutes. You didn't have that much time to get up and get dressed before going going to the hall. But I would lie around and think, do I feel like it? And of course, I didn't feel like it. I mean, there wasn't a, a, a moment where I felt like it. And yet, of course, I had made this commitment. And so I got up anyhow. But it took me a while to stop torturing myself to realize that Asking this question was torturing myself. Just simply asking the question was a problem. Because the answer I would always get was not one that I was going to follow anyway. So we can rely on something other than, or different than, or deeper than, or more reliable than feelings. Which perhaps is our commitment 
to being here, our commitment to coming to terms with the various energies that arise or with our life in general. We can remember and rely on our commitment to freedom, even if it seems really, really small at times. One can open one's eyes and realize that one is still here. Everyone else is still, still here. And this is something much deeper, stronger, much more reliable than being pulled throughout the day like a puppet about whether we feel like it or not. I mean, there aren't many options other than sitting and walking here anyway. So releasing oneself from feeling or being locked into how I feel um, actually can open up quite a bit of space because the alternative to that is resistance, is resisting the sitting or resisting the walking. And it's not as if we're not supposed to feel resistance. Resistance is just an energy that arises. But we also don't have to bow down to resistance. We also don't have to honor it. We can attempt to use the form of the practice throughout the various ebbs and flows that we may perceive, where there is a lot of energy, there's a lot of kind of willingness, and then through the ebbs where there's very, very little energy and where one really doesn't want to practice. We can really use the form to our advantage, use the structure to our advantage. Another hint is when there is strong doubt in the mind and one is wondering about why one is here or puzzled at times, or one is aware that there is a commitment to be here and yet there's a wavering in the heart or wavering in the mind. Sometimes what I've found is that it can be helpful to take on the practice as an experiment in very, very small kind of periods, chunks of time. For instance, to take on just the sitting that is happening, just this sitting, and to practice as an experiment with the determination to be with the breathing, with the determination to be present, to be awake, to take on the walking simply as an experiment from the beginning of the walking session to the end of the walking session, again with a gentle determination to be awake, to be present, and then kind of to see at the end of the sitting or at the end of the walking what is happening. Has there been any change that has happened? Even very, very small, has there been any change through being committed in this way from the beginning until the end? It can be quite helpful to take it on in very small periods of time because it's a very big thought, a very big concept, and only a thought, only a concept, that of being awake for the rest of the retreat or for the rest of one's lives or you know, whatever. It gets kind of dramatic. We can think in a very dramatic sort of way grandiose in a way. And we don't have to. I think this is quite unnecessary. All we need to do is be present right here and now and perhaps to extend it. This sitting, this walking, this meal, this brushing of the teeth, just this time, this brushing of the teeth. Remembering that what effort is, is a turning towards Right now, our attempt is to be with the breathing. And so we want to turn the mind, turn the full mind, turn the whole heart towards the breath. We notice that we're not with the breath, and so we're turning towards. There is a movement within that. There is the choice to allow things to just happen, to go on. And we can turn the mind towards. We don't want to turn it harshly, We don't want to try to pin anything down. And it is a very gentle turning towards that we want to be with time after time again. And again, to sustain the attention. Sometimes the example is given of a a kettle, putting a kettle on the stove, and then you take the kettle off. I do this, actually. You take the kettle off, and it takes an awfully long time for the water to boil 
when one does that. Instead of just leaving the kettle on, leaving it be, waiting for it to whistle, actually, and then you come to it rather than messing around with it so much. So we can do that with ourselves. We can work with the mind in this way. The attempt to sustain the attention, to be with the breathing. There are a couple of warning signals showing us that there isn't quite enough attention happening. One of these warning signals is noticing when waiting is occurring, when you're hanging around waiting for something to happen. There's kind of a sense of expectancy, expecting something. You know something is going to happen at some point, some time, but it's not now. And there's a sense of sort of leaning forward on one's cushion leaning forward in one's mind, waiting for something to happen. This is a really good signal, and it can happen an awful lot of the time without picking up on it, which is why it's a warning, in a way, a warning that what we need to do at that point is to settle back onto the cushion, to settle down into the body once again, that the only moment that we have is right now, and that there really truly isn't anything to wait for. If we wait a lot, we're waiting our whole life for something to happen. We miss an awful lot of our life. And so the slowing down, the settling back into being with and noticing, perhaps one might notice this throughout the day, that waiting is is happening in the sitting, in the walking, waiting for lunch, 8 o'clock in the morning, waiting for lunch, 2 in the afternoon, waiting for tea, We do this in our daily life all the time. Here is a really wonderful opportunity to see it. Also, awareness of the warning signal of boredom, whenever one notices that one is bored, is a really good warning signal that more attention needs to be paid in the moment and can be paid in the moment. I mean, it's a little bit exciting to actually notice that boredom is happening. It's such a heavy state of mind when we're not noticing it. We're just thinking, ah, now I've discovered this is the way life is. This is the way life is. I thought it was this way, but now I'm finding out it really truly is boring. We can go beyond that and notice that boredom is occurring. And this being, once again, a signal that we need to pay a little bit more attention to this in-breath happening right now, to this step happening right now, whatever it is. In this moment, I don't, I'm not even speaking about you know, when the talk is over, right in this moment, being aware of what it is that is occurring. I think we very much need to remember <coughs> compassion in how we come to this fine art of effort. It's more like being a very good parent that is watching over a child. It's that kind of tenderness that is meditative, truly meditative. Rather than ideas about harshness and about how I have to get somewhere and be someone different, it's more bringing a sense of tenderness into the moment and caring for ourselves, caring for the heart, caring for the mind, which allows us to care for others quite naturally. All of us want the fruit of compassion. And so we need to remember compassion in the practice from moment to moment. That's the only way the fruit occurs, is if we're remembering compassion with ourselves. It's no different. We can notice the different kinds of effort, meditative effort versus non-meditative effort by how it is. And what I mean by that is that non-meditative effort withers the heart. There's a sense of dryness with non-meditative effort. You might actually even notice bruises or black and blues with non-meditative effort. It doesn't really go anywhere. This is what we can notice, is that it really doesn't go anywhere. Whereas meditative effort, which can be strenuous, 
you know, the quotes I mentioned in the beginning, tirelessly, strenuously, um, never letting the cushion lose its warmth, all of that. It can be that. And at the same time, it's satisfying. It might not always feel great. It might not always feel pleasant. But there's some feeling of satisfaction about it. And perhaps this is a way we can discern the difference. I think that working with effort is really, um, it's, it's not that one gets it down, and now I have attained right effort, and now I can do this. All of us are always involved in the delicate, um, fine art of effort throughout our practice. And so it's not a case of getting it down or, or getting anywhere with it. It's simply bringing wisdom to this area and discerning the difference between effort that bears fruit and effort that withers. There are a couple of um, images to mention when states of mind arise where we want to push away or we want to hold on, we want to cling. And the tendency is to use a very non-meditative effort where we're kind of running on instinct and we're pushing away out of instinct or we're hanging on out of instinct. One of these images has to do with um, not feeding a cat. And the image is of a cat coming to one's door wanting to be fed and simply not feeding the cat. If one feeds the cat, I don't love this example actually because I always think of the poor cat, but (laughs) it's also a good one because when a cat comes to the door and wants to be fed, if you feed it, it comes back. It just automatically comes back the next day or the next hour, whatever. If you don't feed the cat, eventually the the cat stops coming. It just stops showing up. It knows it's not going to get nourished at your house, in your home. Another image is of not feeding a fire. It's the same idea, where there is the fire of whatever, thoughts, feelings, difficult emotions, pleasant emotions. There is the fire happening within. And simply not feeding it, and observing how it just simply goes out on its own when it's not being fed. We keep feeding it by pushing away. We keep feeding it by trying to change it. We keep feeding it by trying to control. And simply not feeding it means not pushing away, not holding on, observing, being with. There is a New England proverb, which is appropriate for here. You can't keep trouble from coming, but you don't have to give it a chair to sit on. And it's true. We have no control over whatever it is that arises in the mind, whatever it is that appears. It's not under our control. We think we do, and we want to very much. We think we can control the contents of the mind. We think we can control ourselves. And actually, we can't at all. So we can't keep trouble from coming. But we also don't have to create a cozy home for it either. We don't have to give it a chair. And not giving it a chair is not pushing away, not rejecting, not holding on, not identifying with. Simply allowing what is to be. (coughs) Let me end with a quote from Krishnamurti. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding. It is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding. It is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free.
Okay, let's just take a moment or two to sit. Our days on retreat are filled with a lot of different things. Getting up in the morning and taking a shower, getting dressed, eating, taking walks outside. But as you may have noticed, there's one activity that we do an awful lot of here, and that's sitting still. Most of the day, actually, we are staying still. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about the value of staying still. In speaking about this, there's not the attempt to set up any kind of ideal or way to see what sitting still is. In other words, itchiness is okay. (laughs) The body moving is okay. In speaking about this, I don't mean that one should grit one's teeth and should sit still, but to orient what's being said around the fact that we are sitting still, we are staying still many hours a day, and to look at the value of that, the value of this activity that obviously we think is important. I think one aspect of sitting still is this very vivid, visible commitment to the work that we're doing here. When the Buddha was enlightened on his big night of enlightenment, (laughs) he sat down and One assumes he had the sense that something big was going to happen because he made the vow that he wouldn't get up until he was enlightened, until he woke up. And at a certain point when he was sitting down, various kinds of things came to tempt him. I have to say oftentimes how this is depicted is as a beautiful woman coming and tempting him. But there were also other ways, other kinds of temptations. And what he did was to simply put his hand, point his hand towards the ground, touch the ground, and say that I have a commitment to being here. I have a right to be here. This was when the teasers of desire were coming in, when there were voices saying, why do you think you should be doing this? Why do you think you have the right to do this? And there was the steadiness. There was the pointing towards the ground. There was the affirmation that indeed there was the right to wake up. And for us, it's the very same process. We are the Buddha. The Buddha is us. And so for us, it's the very same thing. And so simply at times, when one feels wavering, to affirm the presence, to point to the ground and affirm steadiness, reason for being here, purpose in being here. So just on that very fundamental level, (coughs) showing up, the fact that we're showing up and are here. And there's a certain level of commitment in this. As well, there is the earnestness in being here, in staying still. And very much there is a response from the universe when there is earnestness. The universe responds to earnestness, just laws of nature, it's just the way things are. So simply this, earnestness bears fruit. And perhaps the most important part of staying still is that there is a physical statement of neither moving towards nor moving away from. In a very physical way, we are saying it is possible to be with, to work with, whatever it is that arises. In a physical way, 
This is the statement that we're making. That everything is workable on some level, even when it doesn't feel like it. There is the statement of the body. In our daily life, when various energies arise, many times we don't notice and sometimes find ourselves certain places not having noticed. For instance, restlessness arises and we find ourselves in the refrigerator, not knowing how we've gotten there, maybe already eating something. It's a puzzlement. And then we may realize, ah, you know, there was something that was pushing me, compelling me. Or we feel agitated or lonely, and all of a sudden we're on the phone speaking to someone. And this isn't a problem. The refrigerator or the phone are not problems. But sometimes we find ourselves places. The body's going someplace, and we don't know how the mind got it there. Someone actually told me that they began to practice because they realized that they were doing the same walk every day, a 15-minute walk, and they were getting to the place not knowing at all how they got there. They would just find themselves there day after day after day and thought, this is serious. I really need to begin to, to, to practice. So on that level, in this commitment to staying still, not in a harsh way or, or through force or gritted teeth, there are certainly times to move, but in this commitment to staying still, we are allowing the kind of coarser or grosser um, energies to be seen, and we're not moving away from them. And this is an enormous strength, an enormous power. And it reflects on the mind. There is a reflection on the mind in terms of a certain degree of steadiness, of stability, of calm, of peace, of, digni of dignity. It happens to some degree quite in a natural way, simply through staying still. And of course, basically, it has nothing to do with the body. We're only using the body as a training, a way to get ourselves to be quiet enough to see what's going on. But basically, it has nothing to do with the body. It has to do with staying still in the mind. Don't chase after the past. Don't seek the future. The past is gone. The future hasn't come. But see clearly on the spot that object which is now, while finding and living in a still, unmoving state of mind. Don't chase after the past. Don't seek the future. The past is gone. The future hasn't come. But see clearly on the spot that object which is now, whatever that may be, while finding and living in a still, unmoving state of mind. And so this is basically what we're doing in practice is finding and living in a still, unmoving state of mind. And this is something that we can only do in the present moment. It's something that we can only do right here and right now. And so right here and right now to notice the breathing, to notice the body, and to be aware of whatever it is that is arising in the mind, in the heart. To be aware on the spot, in this moment, of thoughts, of emotions, of sounds, the sound of my voice, the sounds in the room, of images, of sensations, 
whatever it is that is arising right now, if we know it, immediately there is stillness. In this moment, we have found and we are living in a still, unmoving state of mind. This happens through establishing full awareness at the sense doors. So knowing when a sound is arising, that a sound is arising. Knowing when an image is arising, that an image is arising. When a sensation is occurring, knowing that a sensation is occurring. And on establishing full awareness at the sense doors in the here and now. And whenever we do this, the mind is quiet, is still, is steady. It's not something we can plan to do. It's not something we need, regret not having done. It is always available, always possible in this moment to be aware. Every moment that we are aware, every moment that we are awake, is important, is essential. Because each moment that we're awake, that we're aware, is indeed deconditioning the mind. It has nothing to do with the past. It has nothing to do with how many moments we haven't been around for. It has to do with right here and now valuing this moment being awake, being aware. Every time we do this, we are freeing the mind in a very concrete way, not esoteric at all. In a very concrete way, the mind is freeing itself. When a sound arises and the ear makes contact with the sound, does a story get spun around it? Do we create a story around the sound? And then are we disturbed by the story? Or are we elated, excited by the story? When an image occurs, do we spin a story about the image? Do we describe, do we comment about the image? When a sensation happens, is the mind creating a story around it? This is what we want to see. This is what allows us to stay still, to be still. Is not attempting to push away the stories, but in this moment to notice the various stories that are being created or concocted. There's no need to struggle with the stories. There's no need to struggle with thinking. There's no control that we have over thought, over thinking. And it's really best in a way to forget about it, not to give it much mind, not to think about thinking, to simply notice that a story has been created, that thinking is happening, and to stop, to know that it's possible right now to stop. Not 20 minutes from now, not it was the time to stop, but right here and now, it is always possible to stop, to observe, to see. Krishnamurti once said that when you are in any kind of physical danger, to move away immediately, to move away if there's a physical problem, a car coming at you or a tiger. Well, tigers forget. That comes out of my (laughs) reading too many sutras. But a car or a dog or whatever (laughs) to, to move away. But with any kind of psychological mental state, negative psychological mental state, to stay with it, to never veer away, to always stay with a difficult psychological mental state. 
And I think he says this not as a commandment, not as something one should do, although he does have a lot of authority in his voice. I think it's much more the way the Buddha was saying, Ehipasiko, come and see. Come and see for yourself what happens when we are with psychological states that we may be afraid of. And I think that it's also very reassuring to hear this, that it is possible to stay with difficult mental states and that in the staying with, there is a change, there is a transformation. There's a very, well, I don't know if it's so famous, but there's a Chinese proverb that says, go straight into the heart of danger, for there you will find safety. And it's sort of the same thing. It's staying with difficult states. Not in any kind of a masochistic way, and not elaborating, not describing, not commenting. But with a silent mind, staying with whatever it may be that feels difficult. There are many ways that we um, kind of move away from what it is that is occurring. There are many ways that we ripple and quiver and move away from that which is happening. And these ways are not ways to judge ourselves for. They're simply to pick up on and see so that we can believe these ways a little bit less and perhaps be able to stay with that which is occurring a little bit more gracefully, a little bit more softly, with more reality, with more trueness. Very much in this culture, in an external way, the message is to move away from ourselves. Very, very strongly there is this message that it is not okay to be with difficult states and that there has to be something that can fix us in some way or another. And I think we all, whether we've lived alternative, unconventional lifestyles or not, we all have some of this conditioning because it's so very strong in this culture. I found something in the paper quite a, quite a while ago now. I hope they're still doing it, but I don't know. It's... Um, about Finland saying that a McDonald's ad couldn't be shown. A Finnish consumer court banned a television advertisement for McDonald's saying it exploits the loneliness of a child, a court official said. The advertisement shows a young boy unhappily surveying an empty apartment into which his parents apparently plan to move. Despair turns to joy when he sees a McDonald's on the other side of the street. (laughs) And the happy ending shows the boy eating in the restaurant. (laughs) The court said the advertisement could give the impression that McDonald's products could replace friends or lessen loneliness. I was quite impressed. <laughs> this is very radical in this, um, in this world that we live in for a government to have this much wisdom. Yeah. So just simply understanding and, and acknowledging the effect that the culture does have on us, um, that it really does pull us away in many ways. And in a way, when we practice the Dharma, we're going against the culture. We're going against instinct to some degree conditioning to some degree, to a great degree, and certainly the culture. I think it's important to recognize this because um, it helps us to stay more closely with whatever it is that is happening, recognizing that there are many forces that pull us away. Internally, some of those forces that pull us away are when we find that we're trying to figure things out when the mind is running on 
and attempting to try and fix things, try and figure things out, try and resolve something, whatever it is that's happening. Now, in no way is it a problem that the mind is going on in this way. The problem is that we believe it. The problem is that we see it as true and we go on and on with it. Simply noticing is staying still. It's noticing what's happening, noticing this kind of conditioning. But the believing in it is something we want to have more skepticism about, bring some level of skepticism to or doubt in. We get very pushed around by praise and blame, by praise and blame within, by praise and blame from other people. Well, you can notice the mind praising, praising ourselves for maybe sitting still for the whole entire time without sitting, just to use that kind of an example, whatever it may be, praising ourselves, good yogi. (laughs) Good yogi, good yogi. (laughs) Or blaming ourselves, judging, blaming. And we can notice when we get caught in this, this is a way that we move away from that which is occurring if we get caught. Simply noticing is staying still. I want to emphasize this so much that it doesn't have to do with what's happening. It has to do with our getting caught in what's happening. So simply noticing is staying still. Noticing the inner praise. Noticing the inner blame. And we get caught by praise and blame from other people. I think it helps enormously to recognize that everyone gets both praise and blame. Everyone in this world, no one is not susceptible to both praise and blame. Even the Dalai Lama, who gets an enormous amount of praise in his life, I'm sure all of us here praise him a lot, or when we hear his name, and yet there's a whole country that blames him. China, the whole country blames him in some way, most likely. There's some blame coming. Mother Teresa, it's the same thing. There's a lot of praise, and there's also a lot of blame. So no one is is out of that loop. All of us receive both praise and blame. And noticing this is what's important. Some time ago, probably maybe four or five years ago at this point, CIMC, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, was featured in an article in um, The Globe, newspaper and a magazine. There was a picture of Larry and I in this article. And the reactions were so um, amusing. Within the space of two minutes, I got two radically different announcements. I went into a, um, a convenience store that was right by the center. And I was reaching in to get some milk out of the freezer. And there was a guy on the other side um, putting the milk in. So it was kind of a funny situation anyway, because one doesn't expect that. And he started talking to me from his side of the freezer. And he said, oh, what a great article, what a great picture, and you know, you look so serene, and all this stuff. And then I went back to the center, and I saw someone that I knew quite well, and she said, were you sick that day? (laughs) You look so tired and dragged out. So in the space of five minutes, there were these two radically different uh, reactions. So not to get attached to either. Mm. Now in speaking about being with whatever it is that is occurring and not moving away, and um, hearing deeply what Krishnamurti is talking about in terms of never running away, being with whatever it is that is occurring, and knowing that we can be, at times the mind becomes very, very contracted, as we all know, very constricted, and it feels like it's not possible. And so there can be some degree of panic, of flailing around. No space, contraction, no space in the mind, no space in the heart. And at times like these, one needs to have some tools 
at one's disposal. One is simply stopping and recognizing that one is in hell, labeling it as hell, not trying to make it sound any better than that, but getting to know one's environment. What is hell like? What's it feel like? What are the walls like? What's the air like? What are the, what's the furniture like? What is the experience of being in hell like? And simply stopping, acknowledging honestly and stopping can create some space so that we can, instead of panicking and just simply trying to get out, we can stop and once again be still, be with that which is occurring. Another way is to bring metta in, kindness, loving kindness. This is another way of creating space in the mind. Let me just read you something about Nasruddin. Nasruddin is like a, um, a wise person fool. Uh, in, this, in this story, actually, he's neither. <laughs> just an ordinary person. Mullah Nasruddin decided to start a flower garden. He prepared the soil and planted the seeds of many beautiful flowers. But when they came up, his garden was filled not just with his chosen flowers, but also overrun by dandelions. He sought out advice from gardeners all over and tried every method known to get rid of them, but to no avail. Finally, he walked all the way to the capital to speak to the royal gardener at the sheikh's palace. The wise old man had counseled many gardeners before and suggested a variety of remedies to expel the dandelions, but Nasruddin had tried them all. They sat together in silence for some time, and finally the gardener looked at Nasruddin and said, Well, then I suggest you learn to love them. <laughs> and when the mind is tight and contracted and we wish to stay with that which is occurring, and it's impossible, because at times it is impossible, to bring in metta, to bring in kindness, to bring in space, to learn to love the weeds, to learn to love whatever it is that is occurring. And this naturally brings about space. This naturally brings about room. And then we're able to be with that which is actually happening with closer contact. Metta softens the heart, softens the mind, and it allows us to be with whatever it is that is happening with much more room, with much more space, with much more perspective. When we find it very difficult to be with states of deep grief, of anger, of shame, states of mind that are quite difficult to be with, it is quite skillful to either bring in some metta or go back to the breathing, reestablish steadiness, stability, space with the breath, and then out of this spaciousness of the breath, this home of the breath, to once again touch, very gently touch, whatever it feels to be burning. Okay, so why don't we just um, sit for a moment or two together. If, with alert interest, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, because it is there, you encourage the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is the great work of awareness. It removes obstacles and releases energies by understanding the nature of life and mind. Intelligence is the door to freedom, and alert attention is the mother of intelligence.
So as we move into the walking, into the rest of the evening, to stay with, to stay still, to be aware, to observe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.